This is episode number 43 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the bi-weekly program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective, because unfortunately no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. Unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual One Pod. That's Individual, the number one pod. As is usually the case, so much to talk about in the world of Donald Trump, but so much about it over the last couple of days has been focused on the issue of race and patriotism and Trump's attempts to try to turn a racial issue into an issue of patriotism and who loves America, who hates America. I'll have uh, some thoughts on that. I wrote a column at Media, which I hope you will check out at our Twitter feed, Individual One Pod, that uh, gets into some of those issues that we'll talk about today. I guess the theme of today's podcast is, is Trump a racist or is he just pretending to be one for his own political advantage or survival. Uh, look at my African American over here. Yeah, I, it's an it's an important question. It's a one that's interesting. I'm not sure 100% I have the answer. It's possible that he's both. Uh, it's theoretically possible that he's neither. But I'm I'm leaning towards at least one of those two options. And this all springs from a tweet that he sent over the weekend. We discussed this briefly in episode number 42 in our interview with. Democratic Congressman John Yarmouth, which I urge you to check out for a number of reasons. But this was in reference to the so-called squad of four progressive Democratic female uh, members of Congress of color who have been vocal Trump critics. And Trump uh, referred to them in a tweet saying that they should go back to the countries from which they came, which is a problem. One, because three of the four of them were born in the United States of America. All four of them happened to be United States citizens. And of course, when you're referencing people of color uh, to go back to your country and you happen to be a white guy who uh, has made no secret of the fact that you are embracing uh, white nationalism, if not directly, at least indirectly from a political perspective, and that your base of voters are white, it's easy for people to interpret that as a racist statement, especially when, you know, this argument that, well, no, what he means by this is uh, they're socialists or they're communists. Well, to my knowledge, he's never said anything about Bernie Sanders going back to where he came from. And Bernie Sanders is an avowed socialist running for president on the Democratic ticket. So uh, let's be serious. I mean, come on. It's it's absurd to think that this has nothing to do with race. It's just flat out ridiculous. But is it because Trump is a racist or is it because he sees this to his political advantage, either in his short term survival or is it the only real play he has to win reelection? Now, look, this goes to the quintessential question about Donald Trump. Uh, is he a moron or or is he somehow playing uh, eight dimensional chess? Uh, you know, I, I think that there's two different Donald Trumps. I, I think that Donald Trump, from a book standpoint, is a moron. Uh, 
Uh, however, I think from a street smart perspective, from a, a, a guy who has survival instincts, he's darn near a savant. Now, I don't know whether that means he's actually playing 3D chess or 8D chess or he's really only playing hook and ladders. Uh, uh, but the reality is that sometimes maybe it's just dumb luck. What he does actually works politically, even though if anyone else did it in the past, it would have been disastrous. And Democrats continue to do the same thing over and over and over again. You know, the old definition of insanity is doing the same thing constantly and expecting a different result. Well, Democrats are stuck doing the exact same thing in response to Donald Trump, especially in this issue of race. And it never seems to work out anywhere near what they are hoping for or what they are expecting. Correct. Because here's and here's what's really, I think, going on. Democrats, and I've discussed this with my good friend, Congressman John Yarmouth, who's a very liberal congressman. Again, he was our guest in episode number 42. And I, and I joke with him half seriously and half jokingly uh, about this issue all the time. Democrats do not react intellectually. They react emotionally. They, they're all about feelings. And that's partially why they are so into political correctness, because they don't want anyone's feelings to be hurt. And so the only way they know how to react to an outrage, especially in the realm of race, is to be the victim. Oh, this is so horrible. I can't believe we have a president who's a racist. Oh, well, that doesn't work. Now, the thing, what, why I think Democrats are so confused here is that in any other situation in the past, that's how you destroy somebody. The, the allegation of being a racist, if backed up by any evidence at all, has been historically in recent modern times in America, that's a death sentence. That's the worst thing you can be called. And it has destroyed many, many people, sometimes unfairly. I've seen it firsthand where people have had their lives destroyed when they weren't racist, but they got painted as racist, and that was it. And I think Democrats and liberals see this as, aha, this is the magic bullet. This is, we can bring Trump down if we can just prove he's a racist because it's worked before. But the dynamics here are very different. They are unique. First of all, Trump doesn't seem to care about swing voters. He only seems to care about his base. Correct. And I don't know for sure how much thought has been put into this, but I think there's an argument that from his inauguration, he has always looked at this as he needs to survive, whether it was because of fears of the, the, what happened with the Russian influence in the election or whatever it is, other scandals, that he has always felt safe in appealing to his cult, his cult 45, as I refer to it, his base of support, which is much smaller than normally a president would be comfortable uh, embracing. Most presidents have always thought that you got to get to 52, 53 percent approval. That's your goal. If you have 52, 53 percent approval, you have just over half the country going with you, then you can pretty much 
govern as you would like, especially if Congress is on your side. Trump has never thought about that because he doesn't really care about legislating. That's why there's only been one major law passed in his almost three years of presidency. That's the, the tax cut law. So he doesn't really care that much about that. He never really cared about his wall. He never really cared about getting rid of Obamacare. You know, those were promises that were just bullcrap intended to appeal to uh, those who, Republicans who actually thought he might be a real Republican. So th- that was just food for the base so he and he also let's be clear at his as his at his heart he's a narcissist he loves the roar of the crowd and a cult will give a far larger roar than will people who are just very uh, soft in their support for you a soft 53 percent doesn't really appeal to donald trump donald trump would rather have a rabid 41 42 percent because they cheer they love you they wear your red hats they think you're a god and they will believe anything you say no matter how ridiculous it is correct and we know constantly that that's what trump has counted on i love the poorly educated so so here's the dynamic democrats don't understand that it's never going to work it's never going to erode trump's base now is trump's base large enough to get him reelected? that's the key question here and even i don't have a full answer to that i do not believe it's large enough to beat joe biden which is why i've consistently said joe biden has got to be the nominee if you want to beat donald trump anybody else opens up a pandora's box of other possibilities but if it's biden a white male who isn't completely insane and you know at least (laughs) knows some republicans and doesn't appear to be dead set on uh, criminalizing being a white male then you know trump is going to lose because his base is not large enough but if the opponent is someone that he can create doubt about, he can create fear about, he can play identity politics with, in certain states like Pennsylvania and Florida, which are going to be key to this election, he's got a shot and maybe a really good shot, depending on who that candidate is. So th- this dynamic, I think, is, is something that Trump is conscious of. Whether it's 3D chess or not, I don't know. But the polling so far in reaction to this controversy, which, let's be clear, has been bigger than I expected or or I think is even warranted. I'm not suggesting that the president making an apparently racist remark on Twitter is not news, but we've become so desensitized. We are so desensitized now. I, I think there are far worse things that Trump has said and done, even in just the last couple of weeks. This was bad. I do believe it was possibly racist. It might be just a, which might even be worse, by the way, it might be a cynical ploy to appeal to people with racial animus or racial fear or racial anxiety among white people. But but the reality is that this became a huge story, largely because the news media loves it. The news media is of the same ilk, because they're all liberals, as the Democrats. So they think this is the worst thing you can possibly do or say is to be racist. And this is a a card they have played time and time again, as I've already referred to in the past, and it has worked for them. But it cannot work against Trump. And in fact, sometimes it can backfire. And there's some evidence that it is backfiring, although not as much as Trump would like you to believe. Trump is already out on Twitter today claiming victory in this battle. He referenced a Rasmussen poll. Now, let's be clear. Rasmussen is always the most 
pro-Trump poll there is. It's a joke. They were way, way off uh, in the 2018 midterm elections. But Trump, uh, he often refers to them because obviously they give him the best news. They say the best things about Trump. So therefore, in Trump's world, they're credible inherently. But he tweeted uh, triumphantly that Rasmussen now has him up four points at a 50 percent approval. And he even thanked the squad of the four progressive women saying, quote, thank you to the vicious young socialist congresswomen. America will never buy your act. Now, again, I don't believe the Rasmussen poll. Uh, there's another poll that indicates, a uh, Reuters poll that indicates he is still right at 41 percent. Uh, approval, 55 percent disapproval, which is a horrible number and normally would give you very little, if any, chance at reelection. But even among those numbers, he is up five points among Republicans, up five points from last week among Republicans. You cannot be serious. But down among everybody else, down among Democrats, a couple points. Of course, you can only get so far down. <laughs> Once you're down to single digits, it's hard to lose much support among Democrats and down among independents. So the jury is still out on what political impact, if any, this is going to have. I don't think it's going to have much. We've seen this before. And it's the same playbook over and over again. And and. I'm probably going to write about this in the next couple of days, so make sure you, you check out our, our Twitter feed at Individual One Pod uh, to, to see w- the details on this. But, but and one of the reasons I'm not sure I'm going to write about it is it's so politically incorrect uh, and it's so dangerous to, to even write about. But part of the problem here is Democrats and the media, again, they're of the exact same mindset, don't understand why. This might work for Trump, getting engaging in this battle with the with the the squad, as they're being referred to, why this might work. They think this is proof that the entire Republican Party is racist. Now, I'm the first to admit that after years of defending the Republican Party as a lifelong Republican from charges of racism, that there's at least some portion of the party that is racist that I never realized was as significant as it is. And I've acknowledged this publicly, but it's nowhere near uh, 50% or, you know, something over, over a majority. I don't know what that number is. And I don't think it's clear cut as to whether or not someone is quote unquote a racist or not. But here's the part that Democrats and the media refuse to understand uh, about what's really going on here. Trump wants to make the squad the face of the Democratic Party. Partially because they are of color, partially because they are socialist. He wants to make them the face of the party because it scares white people. Now, why does it scare white people? Might be racist, but it also might be being sick of identity politics, which began on the left. It was the left, and this, is, this always goes back to this pendulum theory, which I, I see in all walks of life. We always overcorrect in this country. We have problems, like, for instance, racism was a real problem in this country, obviously, through the 1960s, and then we try to correct it. And now we, we spend a generation, maybe two generations, correcting to the point where we overcorrect. And now 
people on the other side get sick of it, and then they get scared. They get scared that, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. Hold on. It was wrong when people of color, black people, however you want to refer to it, were, were, were less than full citizens. But now I feel, as a white person, I don't mean me personally. I'm talking about this is how a lot of people look at it especially in rural areas of Pennsylvania and in Florida, which are going to be key voters in the next election. They look at it as, wait a minute, hold on. I'm now close to being the less than 100% citizen. I'm the one who's going to be discriminated against. It's my stuff that's going to be taken away and given to black people in reparations or whatever else you want to call it. When they look at, and this is just symbolic, but when they look at, Jussie Smollett, a a black gay celebrity, being able to fake a hate crime and get away with it with no punishment whatsoever and being embraced by large portions of the liberal establishment, including Democratic presidential candidates, that pisses white people off because they're like, wait a minute, this was not the deal. The deal was we are going to make everybody equal, and that's fine and dandy. Again, I'm not naive. I realize that there are some white people who are just flat-out racist, and they, they hate people of color. They, they're being totally tribal about this. But there's another segment of the population that isn't completely irrational about this that is just looking at it going, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute. I don't feel like I'm going to be treated fairly anymore. I, I feel like I'm the discriminated person. And when they see the squad and they, and they hear the squad's rhetoric, especially when it's socialistic in nature, they get scared. And that plays right into Trump's strategy. Trump wants that. He wants them to be the face of the Democratic Party. And this is where I'm not sure we're talking about 3D chess or blind luck or somewhere in between. But... I think that there's an argument to be made that Trump either, again, blindly through luck or because he's a lot smarter than people give him credit for. If he stirs racial animus on the left like he has by making the squad the face of the party and getting them to react to him so strongly as a racist. Right. So the number one thing on the left is we got to get rid of this racist. Think about this, folks. How in the world in that environment is the left going to nominate an old white male like Joe Biden as their presidential candidate? How is that going to happen? That is, I believe, not a long shot, but it is less than a 50 percent proposition just looking at it from the global perspective. Correct. And it's quite possible that Trump understands this. Correct. Because that is the only way Trump can win here, is if he doesn't go up against Joe Biden. So he's creating an environment. He's creating an environment where Biden is going to have a very difficult time because liberals have lost their fucking minds, all right? And when they have lost their minds, they're not going to act rationally. They're not very rational people to begin with. But they're, and the people who vote in Democratic primaries are very left. They're not generally moderates. And so when he has pushed their buttons to the point where they're, they've lost their minds, they're not going to go for Joe Biden. 
Joe Biden is not the guy that is going to make them feel good and lash back. We're going to lash back against this racist by nominating a super old white guy. That's not going to be their impulse. Their impulse is going to be, well, who do we got? Who, who, who do we got that's going to piss off Trump as much as possible? Well, Kamala Harris right now fits the bill better than anybody. She's a female of color. Well, Kamala Harris, not coincidentally, happens to do worse against Donald Trump in head-to-head polling than any of the major candidates. And it's not a coincidence. Now, part of it is because she's a woman of color. I will acknowledge that. Part of it is because she's super socialist. And she's, <laughs> I don't think she's authentic. She'll say whatever she wants to say at the moment uh, because she thinks it appeals to whoever she wants to appeal to, which, of course, is a lot like Trump. But the, but the reality is that Trump doesn't want to run against Biden. He would rather run against Kamala Harris. That's territory that he feels far more comfortable in. Why? Because his base, the people of rural Pennsylvania, the people of the panhandle of Florida, the people he absolutely needs to come out in huge numbers for him, are not going to vote for Kamala Harris over Donald Trump especially when he's waving not a white flag of surrender, but a white flag of, I've got your back, white people. That's what he's saying. Subconscious, it's not even subconscious. He's, he's, he's basically overtly saying, I'm not going to screw white people because they're white. I'm going to hold the line on this tidal wave that is perceived by a lot of white people of a... Uh, of the pendulum going too far in the other direction to mix a metaphor. That's the fear. Now, whether that fear is rational or not, I think is an open debate. I'm not sure because, you know, I live here in California where there's a lot of white angst here because frankly, I mean, this is insane, but it is not hyperbole that the government of California treats illegal immigrants far more seriously and with far more respect than conservative white males. If you're a conservative white male in California, you're meaningless, meaningless. You, you, and you, you can be discriminated against in any way possible. No one's going to rush to your defense. If you're an illegal immigrant, the establishment in California will do everything they possibly can to protect you. We saw that this just past weekend. With these bogus ice raids, which I told you were going to be way overblown, they were more way overblown than even I thought. They were classic Trump. All cattle, no, all hat, no cattle. All bluster, no reality. And I think that was part of his strategy. Trump knows he will trigger the left. I'm going to have de- deportations. The left goes crazy and shows just how much in favor of illegal immigration they are. And we saw it here in Southern California, the, the Democratic establishment and the news media, again, they're basically the same thing, effectively were acting as advocates for illegal aliens or immigrants to avoid the ICE raids. This is not an exaggeration. They openly did this actively. They would never do this to protect a conservative white male that was in trouble. <laughs> never, <laughs> never in a million years. So... While California is not in play politically, I do think that the white angst that I see here on a daily basis 
especially non-urban areas. You got urban whites who are basically, you know, virtue signaling and just don't want their stuff taken away. So they're going to go along with the the liberal uh, agenda and they're going to, you know, it's white guilt. And, you know, the urban whites, they're as as anti-Trump as anybody. Because they just don't want their stuff taken away. They don't, you know, they don't want to lose their reputations, their jobs. So they're going to be as politically correct as possible. Those outside of the urban areas, uh, who are generally middle class or or less than that, they are fearful. They are they are angst ridden, and whether it's conscious or subconscious, they are going to gravitate towards Trump because they think he has their back, or at the very least, he's not going to take their stuff and give it to black people. A lot of this is very tribal. We have stopped voting in this country based upon policy, philosophy, even necessarily what's good for you personally. A lot of it is demographics. A lot of it is purely tribal. We are, we are, we are devolving back into a tribal mentality. And while nationally appealing to the white tribe is a losing proposition, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by 3 million votes, in the Electoral College, if done right and getting, and getting lucky like Trump did in 2016, you can still win the Electoral College appealing to white people. You can still do that. And that's Trump's best play. In fact, it might be his only play. Correct. And that's what he's doing here. So is he actually racist? Uh, look at my African-American over here. I mean, there, there's a lot of evidence on both sides of this. But I do believe he is at least pretending to be racist because it actually works to his perceived political advantage or at least survival. And that is so is so counterintuitive and so beyond the comprehension of the media and the Democratic Party in this country. They just don't get it. And they continue to play into Trump's hands. And people say, well, what should we do? Are we just going to let him get away with this? Um, it is it is not an easy thing. It is not easy to thread this needle, especially when you have to appeal to your base. I mean, because liberals are incensed by this. Nothing incenses them more. And there's some, you know, it's not it's not a bad thing that when someone they perceive as being racist, that enrages them. OK, I get it. That's there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But from a political perspective, when your agenda see, this is the problem. When your agenda on the left talks about reparations for people who haven't been alive for, for many decades for slavery or whatever else it is, I'm sorry. You can't have it both ways. You lose all credibility with white people. So, so you got to get rid. You can't, you, if you're going to cry racism, you got to get rid of some of this stuff that makes it seem like your agenda is anti-white or that white people are going to be treated as less than black or brown citizens. And whether that's reality or perception, it doesn't matter because we live in a world where perception is everything. And that is the perception among a lot of white people. And it's not totally irrational because of the nuttiness on the left with regard to their policy positions. So I guess part of this to me is that, you know what, this, you, you kind of get what you, you, you reap what you sow. 
Democrats started this identity politics baloney, and now they don't like that it's coming back to haunt them to a certain degree. Again, I don't know whether or not it's going to be enough to salvage Trump's reelection. It is quite possible that he is miscalculated and that his base is just not going to be large enough. I have said time and time again that base will not be large enough against a, a Joe Biden who is still intact following a Democratic primary with a decent VP candidate. He can't beat Joe Biden, but I do believe he can beat Kamala Harris. And I do believe he can beat Elizabeth Warren. And I do believe he can beat Pete Buttigieg. Bernie Sanders, I don't believe, is going to be the Democratic nominee. But I think he could probably even beat Bernie Sanders because I don't think most Americans even know who Bernie Sanders is. And the fact that he runs on, this, on a socialist ticket, I think, will, will change the dynamic, would change the dynamic. It would change it from a referendum on Trump to a referendum on socialism versus capitalism. And that's an argument Trump wins. I've said it before. It bears repeating. Trump understands his best issues for the Electoral College are patriotism, capitalism, maleness, and whiteness, because those are four issues the Democratic Party are ceding to him 100 percent to their own peril. And as far as patriotism is concerned, it's interesting to me that Donald Trump has tried to change, at least in part, this issue of his racially charged tweets against the squad into somehow a, a referendum on their patriotism or their hatred of America. And this is where Democrats, I think, really missed the boat. And I've written about this for media edits I've already referred to. I hope you'll check it out. Because I think Democrats do not understand that you go after Trump on his perceived strengths, not on his perceived weaknesses, on his perceived strengths. And one of those is that somehow he has owned the issue of he loves America. Make America great again. That, that somehow, uh, you know, we saw on the 4th of July, him making the celebration about him allegedly, uh, you know, uh, praising and honoring the military. And every time he does this, the left plays right into his hands because he wants to own that issue. Well, the reality is, based upon his own standards and his own words, if he's saying that the squad doesn't love America, that the squad hates America, that's the word he used, hates, the squad hates America, by his own words and his own standards, it's Donald Trump who actually hates America more than even the squad does. And by the way, you know, the squad may not really love America, but based upon Trump's own standards and words, he really hates America. This is a guy who came to political prominence claiming that our president, Barack Obama, was not legitimately elected because he wasn't eligible to be president because he wasn't born in the country. Now think about that. What kind of a shithole country would let that happen? Didn't happen. It was a bullshit conspiracy. It was all a... And it was obvious, but Trump used it to gain political prominence and to gain a foothold and traction within the racist portion of the Republican Party. And so, but, it, but if you believe that, the, that this country was capable of, of, of that, you must not think we're very good. By the way, during the campaign when he ran... He claimed that the, the election process was rigged against him. That sounds like a shithole country. The electoral process was rigged against him? By the way, his opponent, he said, should have been locked up for crimes that have never been explained to me. 
But how is it that a, a good country could allow a criminal to be the Democratic nominee in his view? That sounds like a, a crappy country. He, he claimed all sorts of things during the election. His entire theme, make America great again. Well, what does that say? America's not currently great. Well, that doesn't sound very patriotic. And now in his inaugural dress was as dark as it could possibly be. He made us sound like a shithole country. And now as president, he believes that there's a deep state conspiracy, a deep state conspiracy against him. The collusion delusion is over. A deep state conspiracy to oust him from power. That sounds like a third world country. By the way, it's it's a witch hunt, he said, led by a lifelong Republican, former head of the FBI. <laughs> and Robert Mueller, these are the forces out to get him, a duly elected president, for no other reason than they are apparently against whatever the hell his agenda is. He believes that some of our most uh, prominent meet news media outlets, outlets which I routinely disagree with, do not trust, have criticized vehemently as a, a fervent critic of the news media, which I believe is broken in this country. But they are, they are not, as Trump has said, fake news. They are not fake news most of the time. The vast majority of the time, they are not fake news and they are not enemies of the people. But this is a man who does not believe in free speech. He does not believe in the First Amendment of the Constitution, our founding principles of freedom of speech. This is why this country was basically created in the first place. He does not believe in it. And, and to call the New York Times and the Washington Post and, and the major news outlets fake news and the enemy of the people, that's an indication of a guy who does not believe in America. This is, this is a guy who constantly degrades America unless it's good for him. And so, and I'm not even sure he really, I don't think he actually really believes any of this. I think this is all his contrived BS. Correct. So what, if I'm the Democrats, what I want to do is I want to force Trump's hand on this. Make him defend his own patriotism on these terms, in this playing field. Because it's one or the other. Either you hate America, Mr. President, or you're lying to your cult base about all sorts of things, about how bad America is, the deep state, the, the witch hunt against you, the fake news, the enemy of the people, all this other stuff. But, oh, oh, by the way, he, he sided with, with Russia and Vladimir Putin, a former KGB agent, over our own intelligence agencies. What kind of a country has their president side with Vladimir Putin, a murderous former KGB agent, over their own intelligence agencies? That would be a shithole country right there if that was true. Of course, it's not true. It's all bullcrap. Correct. So force him to pick a lane. Pick a lane. Either you don't really love America, Donald Trump, or you're lying. Which is it? But Democrats can't do that because they immediately, reflexively, reliably, always react emotionally. 
instead of strategically. And it plays right into Donald Trump's hands. They always play the victim card. The four members of the squad were on CBS this morning playing the victim card, making it all about them. Now, they weren't terrible. I mean, they, they, they could have been worse. <laughs> my standards for them are pretty low. But just by virtue of the fact that they have now become the face of the Democratic Party is a win for Trump because they are of color, they are women, they are socialist, they're not particularly bright. They've said some things that can be see, seen as anti-American, anti-Israel. And so when Trump is able to make them the face of the opposition, that is a victory for him. And liberals just refuse to understand this because it doesn't compute in their worldview. But their worldview, while it might get you a majority of the popular vote, good chance it doesn't get you the majority of the electoral college vote which is how we determine elections, presidential elections, in the United States. A couple other things I want to talk about in our hour here on episode number 43 of the podcast. As a longtime conservative talk show host, it has been not that surprising, yet incredibly depressing, to see how many supposed constitutional conservatives have totally sold out, totally sold out to Donald Trump, for purely commercial purposes. Correct. And one of the issues that has enraged me and has gotten no, nowhere near as much attention as it should among conservatives is this notion of the debt and the deficit. You know, conservatism, republicanism, the Freedom Caucus used to be about trying to rein in the size of the federal government and rein in spending. Under Trump, the exact opposite has occurred. Correct. And we now know that it is projected that in 2019, the United States government will have a trillion dollar deficit for just this year. Now that would be bad under any circumstance. It would be the second highest of all time. But it's particularly bad when you consider that we are in an era of extreme economic growth and prosperity. That is the time period when you're supposed to reduce the deficit. And instead, it has exploded because Donald Trump, surprise, surprise, a guy who has lived off debt his entire life, understands that there is zero, zero personal benefit to fiscal restraint when you're in charge of the federal government. Nobody, nobody gives you credit for it. And in fact, you can get criticized for it because someone's going to get their funding cut. And so he's spending other people's money, which is what Trump has done his entire life. He's spending our children's money, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren's money for his own benefit. This is classic Trump. This was always going to be what Trump was going to do. And there has been no blowback from any major conservative, especially within the commercial media. And Rush Limbaugh, who was the founding father of conservative talk radio, finally yesterday acknowledged publicly in response to a phone caller, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that whole fiscal responsibility thing, that whole being against the debt thing, that was all just a scam. 
Yeah, no one, no one really believed it. It was all just a. We no longer care about that because our guy is in charge. Now, whether or not after Trump leaves, assuming we still have a country when Trump leaves, whether they're going to change their tune on that, I don't know. They've lost all credibility with me. I think they've lost all credibility with the non-cult member, which is why they no longer care. See, this is all about economics. This is all about ratings. And so because they realized, oh, my gosh, most of my audience is Colt 45. And because the non-Colt 45 audience has left because they realize, oh, my gosh, this whole thing is a fraud. You mean I've been listening to this for decades and you didn't believe anything you really said? You just said it because you thought it was in your self-interest. It was just the party line. And now that a new guy's in charge, there's been a coup. We're going to change all of our philosophies, all of our principles. No, sorry. Now, unfortunately, that's a minority of the audience. It might be a very small minority of the audience. That's what Glenn Beck found out. (laughs) Glenn Beck was late to the party and realized too late. I don't know if it was too late, but later than everyone else. Oh, my gosh. The audience doesn't give a damn about this stuff, this principle stuff. So I'm going to have to uh, put on a red hat and I'm going to have to uh, toe the party line. and I'm going to have to be supportive of Trump as much as I can stomach in order to survive. And that's what Glenn Beck has done. Well, well, Rush Limbaugh just acknowledged, hey, uh, you know what? This was all just a fraud. It's just a scam. No one cares about it anymore. No, no one probably ever really did care about it to begin with. And, uh, and it's devastating because there's no going back. There's no going back, especially in this issue. You, you, you cannot, after you've had a Republican president and for two years you had a Republican Senate, Republican Congress with a, a deficit hawk, Paul Ryan as Speaker of the House. So you have, it's never going to happen again, where you have all that in play and even then the deficit exploded. There was no curtailing of spending. And with the tax cut, the, instead of that deficit being closed, it actually widened. And so in the future, and this is where it really becomes devastating. You know, let me give you, take this out of the theoretical into the practical. Kamala Harris is being mocked today by, by some conservatives for uh, claiming that she won't have to raise middle class taxes to pay for Medicaid for all. Now, everyone knows that's ridiculous. It's absurd. It's a lie. But I'm sorry, uh, you have no credibility, none, to attack her on saying that because we can just add to the deficit. Now, it'll eventually break us. But, but once you give up that principle, it's not just theoretical. It has practical implications. And the practical implications here are you can't argue credibly that this is irresponsible. And it plays right into the Democrats' hands. Because now they can claim they're going to pay, they they can give you the moon, the star, the sun. They can give you anything they want. And they don't have to worry about paying for it. Because Republicans just showed they're a bunch of frauds when it comes to fiscal responsibility. And this, this will eventually haunt us. I don't know when, I don't know how, but it's going to be big and there's no coming back from it. And it's all going to be because, not that, that people will understand this because the Trump cult will, will not want to understand this, but it will all be because Trump was the last opportunity to, to hold the line on this. And he not only didn't hold the line, he embraced the liberal view of federal government power, federal government spending in a way that can now never be reversed. 
ever. A couple other things real quick. Uh, I didn't get a chance in episode 42 to reference the resignation of Labor Secretary Alex Acosta, which I had spoken about previously, that I did not think he should resign because of the plea deal that he gave Jeffrey Epstein uh, back in 2007-2008. Now, Trump claims that he stood by Acosta and that he did not want him to resign, although I, I find that hard to believe because you know, he's the president. And I doubt Acosta decided on his own. Uh, you know, the, it might have been his idea, but Trump, I think, probably could have said, no, 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 I'm not going to accept your resignation. But he did accept the resignation begrudgingly. They did a, a, a mutual press conference together out on the White House lawn, which is exceedingly rare for this kind of situation. I mean, I don't I, I doubt I, I can't remember a president holding a, a mutual press conference with a cabinet secretary who resigned in scandal. <laughs> alleged scandal, uh, with the president being supportive of that person. But we're obviously living in very strange times. I do not think it was legitimate. And I, I think it was very unfair. Was that deal with Epstein uh, back in 2008, uh, was it the best he could have done? I have no idea. I don't think anyone has any idea. But it was a different era prior to Me Too. It was a much more difficult case than people are giving credit for. Uh, Epstein's uh, victims, while they were underage, they were also paid, which indicates that they easily could have been paid again to not cooperate. There's some evidence that they were not cooperating with the prosecution. One of the apparently key uh, witnesses slash victims had disappeared. These are not easy cases, especially back then prior to Me Too. And uh, so the idea that somehow in 2020 hindsight, we can destroy a guy who was doing a good job, apparently, as labor secretary because of uh, of the fact that he got uh, Epstein to plead guilty and had a, you know, now, unfortunately for Acosta, the penalties did not get executed in a, in the way that I think he expected or they should have been. He got an, a far easier deal than I think Epstein or that Acosta thought that he had created in that plea deal. But there were some significant penalties, not as much as he probably deserved. But this was it's not as if Acosta has been credibly accused of engaging in some sort of cover up or being paid off to give Epstein an easy deal. That's not what happened here. This is pure 2020 hindsight based upon a completely different world that did not exist in 2007, 2008. So, you know, it disappointed me that Trump didn't more firmly stand behind Acosta and that he was forced to resign basically because of political correctness, which I thought wasn't supposed to happen in the Trump administration. Finally, is there going to be, uh, well, not finally, a couple other things. Is there going to be a, uh, a race against Trump for the Republican nomination? Uh, I have uh, written in the past, it didn't look like there's going to be a major uh, contender to go up against Trump, which has major significant consequences. If you look at recent history uh, of presidential elections, incumbents who have to fight off intra-party battles in their primaries tend to lose those that do not tend to win. It's, it's really pretty overwhelming, the stats. And it's not coincidental. And so uh, yesterday it was put out there that Mark Sanford, former uh, congressman from South Carolina, I think he was also the governor there, uh, he famously resigned over uh, the, the, an affair he had. Uh, this is the whole Appalachian Trail 
uh, uh, Mimi that got out there, which I don't think is helpful to him, that he may make a run against Donald Trump for the Republican nomination. It's not certain that this is going to happen. In fact, gun to my head, I do not believe Sanford will run against him. He's already had some troubles uh, early on and hasn't even officially announced. I am aware part of my dog in this hunt is, well, I want there to be a a battle for the Republican nomination, if only for historical and principal perspectives. I am aware that there's another prominent person who is strongly considering a run against Donald Trump, who I think would be far more well-suited to this battle than Mark Sanford. So I hope Sanford thinks twice about this. It is my understanding that there are some people who have reached out to Sanford to try to convince him that there is another person who might do a better job of this. I do not know uh, the status of that. If If I do find that out, I will certainly tell you. But it is my hope and expectation that somebody is going to at least try to fight Donald Trump for the Republican nomination. They are unlikely to win, but this wouldn't be about winning the nomination. This would be about history, principle, and maybe bloodying Trump up enough to where it would impact him in a general election. Of course, stranger things have happened. You always want to win. And it is you know, theoretically possible, but highly unlikely that anybody could ever beat Donald Trump for the Republican nomination. But I do think it's a fight worth fighting. And I and I hope someone does it. I just hope that it doesn't have to be Mark Sanford. Uh, with regard to uh, the Democratic primary race, Kamala Harris has taken a very small lead here in California, although she only has 22 percent of the vote, which is not that shocking, considering that you know, she is a senator and former attorney general here in California. She's overtaken Joe Biden by a couple of percentage points. But the four major contenders are all very much packed together. California is going to have a much larger play in the Democratic primaries this cycle because it's much earlier in the calendar. And so that's why there's going to be a focus on California and why Kamala Harris may have a very good chance of pulling the upset against Joe Biden. Uh, Joe Biden still leading in most national polls, but that lead has shrunk. And I do think we're down, as as Congressman John Yarmouth indicated, I do think we're down to four or five people. I think that this is a five-person race with four people having a legitimate chance to win the nomination. Sanders will be part of this race because he has a cult following, but that cult following cannot get over 20, 25 percent nationally, I don't think. 25 percent tops, it looks like, in a, in a multi-person race. And so you can't win the nomination that way. Uh, and, and so and I, I, I would like to believe Democrats aren't going to be crazy enough to nominate an, a very old Jewish guy who's an avowed socialist uh, from Vermont. I, I just find that very hard to believe that that's what's going to happen. But, uh, you know, anything's possible. So I, I'm going to put him in theoretically in that five-person group. But there's only five people who can win that nomination. And of those five, I'll say it again, Joe Biden is by far, as Congressman Yarmouth agreed with me in episode number 42 of the podcast, is by far the most electable against Donald Trump, in case you care about such things, which unfortunately I'm not sure Democrats really do. As far as um, our interview with Yarmouth, he referenced, and that was the headline of the Mediate article about our interview, he referenced that he believes that if Robert Mueller's testimony, scheduled for a week from today to two different congressional committees, goes well, that Donald Trump will be impeached. 
I didn't agree with that when John said it, and I pushed back against him. I urge you to check that out if you've not yet done so. In thinking more about it, I'm even more convinced that John is not correct about this, that John is being uh, a little naive and overly optimistic, which he, is, he openly admits he's, he's vulnerable to being. It's part of why I love John, part of why we get along, because in so many ways we're very opposite. I'm the pessimist and he's the optimist. Trust me, it's worked out for his life a lot better than has worked out for my life. But he acknowledges that sometimes that means he's wrong. Uh, he believes it. I don't think he's just saying it. He really believes that once Mueller testifies that the majority of the Democratic caucus will be in favor of impeachment and that that will create a momentum that will force Nancy Pelosi to say, OK, let's go ahead with this. I am unconvinced. I am unconvinced that the audience for Mueller's testimony will be as large as it would have been three months ago. In fact, I'm sure it will not be. We're now in the middle of the summer. In most people's minds, this thing is over. The collusion delusion is over. In short, Bill Barr won. It was dastardly. It was wrong. In a rational world, he would have been removed from office for doing it. I think it's impeachable on Trump's behalf for having hired Barr after firing Jeff Sessions because he had recused himself from the Russian investigation. I'm passionate about that, but no one seems to want to understand that or agree with me or at least fully agree with me on that. But uh, the reality is that uh, Robert Mueller would need to hit a grand slam home run in his testimony next week, and the bases are not loaded. So you can't hit a grand slam when the bases aren't loaded. And when we're in the middle of summer and we're several months now removed from when this was at the top of everyone's mindset, uh, and you've got Republicans waiting there to create all sorts of distractions and, and utter bullshit. I and mean, I'm sure the bullshit level is going to be at a, a record high as people uh, you know, who are Trump sycophants uh, try to distract and try to create this deep state conspiracy BS and, and witch hunt and all that baloney. I, I would like to believe some of that's going to backfire uh, because Mueller, I think, is someone who could make that backfire. I think he has enough stature for that to occur. But I just don't think there's going to be a large enough audience among the people that would be needed to dramatically impact popular opinion. And then right after Mueller's testimony, they go on recess for the summer. So any momentum that gets created is going to be immediately dissipated. And I, I am much more cynical about Nancy Pelosi than, than my friend John Yarmouth is. I think Nancy knows this. I think Nancy's playing a game. I think Nancy wants to allow her caucus to let off all the steam they can, uh, but that she knows that the calendar's on her side and that it's just not going to be possible to, uh, to get the momentum for impeachment based upon the circumstances that exist. And once the summer's over, now we're really into the presidential campaign, and now it's basically impossible to uh, impeach the president of the United States. Uh, because now everyone can just say, well, heck, in less than a year, we've got an election. Why don't we just wait for the election? And, and I have constantly said, and I did convince Congressman Yarmouth of this, and to his great credit, he has acknowledged this numerous times on this podcast and elsewhere, that this is an issue of history. This is an issue of precedent. This is an issue of principle. If you don't impeach Donald Trump, impeachment no longer matters, and that we become darn close to a monarchy in this country instead of a democratic republic. Unfortunately, my belief is we're very close to that is what's going to happen. 
that Trump will not be impeached and that Nancy Pelosi doesn't really want him impeached because she is determined for whatever reason, probably wrongly, that it would help his reelection bid if he got impeached and then acquitted in the Senate, which is, of course, almost surely what would happen because Republicans control the Senate and the the Republican Party has become a cult and the cult is still firmly behind Donald Trump. Correct. So uh, with all that said, I'm going to a couple things. Uh, Our next episode is going to be the day of supposedly and it's been postponed before, so it might be postponed again, but supposedly the day of the Mueller testimonies. We're in all likelihood, unless something huge happens, we'll not be doing a a new episode over this coming weekend. But we will do one reviewing the Mueller testimony a week from today. That would be the 24th of July. So make sure you you mark your calendars uh, for that. And then we'll do another episode the following weekend reviewing whatever aftermath there may be of that. Uh, But I'm going to keep the the numbers that we end each edition of the podcast with static. 3% chance that that Trump does not finish his first term in office and a 52% chance that he is reelected as president of the United States. Uh, uh, But obviously those numbers are prone to change based upon events and the Mueller Mueller, uh, testimony might be, underlying might be one of those events if something dramatic happens. But there needs to be a very dramatic moment that breaks through the clutter in the middle of summer. And I just, I find it hard to believe that that's going to happen. We no longer live in a substantive world. We live in a world of sound bites. And I just don't know what that sound bite could possibly be to radically change change things, especially now months after the Mueller report is out. As I said to John Yarmouth, this is all about timing. It makes no sense to the average person that this is a matter of such urgency that we need to impeach the president when you haven't done anything for the last three months. And Mueller hasn't even been forced to testify. If it was that urgent, this would have happened immediately. It didn't. That sends the signal this isn't a big deal, even though it actually is a big deal. But we live in an upside-down world. On that happy note, that'll do it for this edition of the Individual One Podcast. Please remember to subscribe to, rate, review, and share the show via social media. Follow us on Twitter, at Individual One Pod. That's Individual, the number one pod. Until probably next Wednesday, the day of Robert Mueller's uh, testimony, Uh, This is John Ziegler. You're listening to the Global Story Network.